0: Welcome to Blackwells Presents. My name is Ray. I've been working for Blackwells around 10 years and I'm here today with James Attlee, the author of *Isolarian*, a book about a pilgrimage up the Cowley Road. Welcome James. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. This is a new edition of *Isolarian*, published by And Other Stories. Um, It was previously published first about Yeah, about a dozen years ago by University of Chicago, where I came across it when I was working in Auckland University Bookshop, and it threw me right back onto the Cowley Road because I'd been living in Oxford before I went to live in New Zealand. As this book was published around a dozen years ago, things have changed since then. How do you think the Cowley Road has changed or has it changed
1: at all? Well, of course, when I was invited uh, to do a new edition of the book, I wondered how I'd deal with that question, that very question. And I address it really in the preface. I mean, the first thing perhaps to say is even when I was first writing it, things were changing. As I wrote things, things were changing. And indeed, between the University of Chicago hardback and the paperback that subsequently came out with Transworld, things had changed. And I put a couple of notes in that first paperback edition to say they had, but I also made clear this was never intended to be a guidebook. Yes. And after a dozen years, it was completely clear that I couldn't go through the book saying, well, this is gone, or this has changed from, you know, being a shop into a supermarket or whatever, it would be a totally boring thing to do. And actually, I I addressed that in the preface, and maybe I could just read a a couple of sentences from that. I was half listening to the radio recently when my attention was drawn to the conversation of a group of scientists about the work they do in Greenland, drilling down to take core samples from glacier ice. It seems that bubbles captured in glaciers contain miniature atmospheres. Climate scientists date them and measure the level of CO2 and other gases they contain, to further their research into the timeline of global warming. I can't help thinking that a book is a bit like one of those bubbles. It too contains an atmosphere, frozen at a particular moment, released when we open it to read. Sniff the pages of this one and you might just catch the aroma of the street along with the sound of snatched conversation, music booming from a car window, and the hiss of coffee machines. You see, yeah, I think a book is a bit like one of those bubbles in the ice. It captures mm. the atmosphere at a particular moment. But you say, well, has it changed? Of course, superficially, it's changed enormously. Um, not just in lots of new businesses opening up. Um, I think a particular trend that I didn't really foresee at the time. You know, when I was writing *Isolarian*, I was particularly concerned about large chains moving in because local small businesses couldn't afford the the business rates. So you'd get multinational chains like Costa or whatever uh, moving in. Um, But since then, what I've realized is that the forces of homogenization come in many guises. and, And now we've got a lot of kind of independent, for want of a better word, hipster coffee places but in a sense, that is a new kind of homogenization because they're very often, the people who serve in them are very much like the clientele and they're rolling out a sort of vision of, of kind of cosmopolitan life across the country, which is the same wherever you go, whether you're in yeah. Hoxton or Manchester or Glasgow, you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, on the other hand, what's always interested me about cities is the way that there are these kind of invisible boundaries between different districts, you know, and that for a long time, Magdalen Bridge was a kind of boundary, that that students were warned not to go over the bridge into Cowley because it it might be dangerous and so on. Now, of course, lots of students live in East Oxford and and the universities, (coughs) both universities are building student accommodation there. But um, I think that the Cowley Road has a particular kind of aura or what the situationists would have called an ambience. Mm. And the, in a sense, that doesn't change. However much gentrification you throw at it, it has a kind of spirit, uh, which partly comes from the number of people there who've made long journeys to live here and have set up their own businesses and are trading and and all getting on together mm. um, and, and that's what I, I I mean that's one of the things that I really like about it I guess Yeah.
0: Uh, anyway so yeah as Jeff Dyer says in the Afterward to your book um, the Cowley Road kind of represents um, a microcosm of multicultural Britain um, and I, I kind of see the Cowley Road as a kind of reflection of what East Oxford's, like, very multicultural. Yeah, I mean,
1: no, that's... It's an interesting point you're making. And one of the kind oh, of sorry. quotations that was resonating in my mind when I was writing it was um, came from William Carlos Williams, the American poet, who said, only the local is truly universal. Hmm. And I was not in the least interested in writing a bit of kind of local publishing about a particular area that was only of interest to the people who lived in that area. Um, I thought, well, if, if it's that, it's not my, it's not, I'm not particularly interested in that do, doing that. So in a way, I was pleased that it was published first by an American publisher and that I would get letters from people in Chicago or Toronto or whatever saying that's just like my neighbourhood. Yeah. You know, that's, it's the same things I thought. I mean, the other, the other, idea i think that was in my mind as i was writing or the other kind of thinking that had influenced me through things that i would written before and researched before was the work of jane jacobs the american urban theorist who wrote you know the death and life of great american (laughs) cities back Mm. in 1961 but she talked about close observation of a neighborhood and and she was saying really that there was nothing you can't learn about life from closely observing a little patch of the city. And so, yeah, I I was thinking that because of the peculiar nature of this city, where there's tremendous pressure on housing stock and so on from the number of students who come in and the landlords who are exploiting that situation by multiple properties to rent them out, you know, most they can get to students, as well as the fact that we're close enough to London that quite a large number of people commute to London and and London wages and so therefore Mm. push up house prices. You know, these sort of forces are operating on cities all over the world. Um, You know, you look at what's happened to Manhattan with with people just being squeezed right off the island Mm. um, because of uh, rising prices. And... um, I just think in Oxford it's it's very concentrated and easy to look at because um, there's so many places that small businesses can't afford to operate. So they kind of a, a large concentration of them are, are squeezed almost like a sort of line of toothpaste along along the Cowley Road. And I, I think what was also in my mind was the way in which this city has sent out people to observe other cultures around the world, you know, in all kinds of ways, anthropologists, and so on, yeah. gone all over the place, um, to, to write their their reports um, from their point of view of other people's cultures. And I, I just thought, well, people have, meanwhile, just been coming to here here to live from all over the place and kind of let's hear what they've got to say about us, in a sense. Mm. And the last thing, I like in this context that I would mention, is that I was writing in the aftermath of the um, tube bombings in London in 2005. I mean, that's when I started writing the book. When I, when I was writing it because I felt compelled to, but I had no idea of who was going to publish it or how that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed after the bombings that the discourse in the press really shifted. And there was a kind of open sort of xenophobia and Islamophobia and being expressed in the mainstream media in a way it just wasn't before. And um, so in a way, that was one of the things that made me think, well, I don't want to sign up to this idea of Britishness that they're saying they, everybody's got to sign up to. And I don't really recognise that as being the country that I relate to So I thought, I'll just go out on a reconnaissance and find out, well, what is it that I like about my neighbourhood, you know, and the people that I meet, and just do a journey in that way. Um, You know, a lot of my neighbours would sort of make big journeys to go to Mecca, or I'd meet sort of American tourists who come to Britain in search of their ancestors, you know, or other people who had gone to... Graceland to sort of worship at the shrine of Elvis Presley or whatever. And I was thinking, well, I haven't actually got time to do any of those things or the money and I've, I've got a full-time job um, and I'm going to London every day mm. um, on the train and I've got young kids, but still there is a journey I can make without leaving home. And just whenever I had a spare minute, I would, I would go mm. down to Curry Road and see what happens and just be open to conversations and encounters.
0: Mm. I think that very much comes across in the book as well. Um, It's, having been a traveller myself, it's the kind of stories that that you you engage with in in the book um, are travellers' tales, basically. Mm. So it is a a voyage. (laughs) It's a voyage around the world, up the Cowley Road, basically. Mm. At the time, though, um, and you mentioned the two bombings, um, leading up to there, I think there was a, an optimism I yeah. seen, about multiculturalism, which I think is very much under strain now.
1: I think, I think the word multiculturalism is a very tricky one, and I think my understanding of its nuances have changed mm. probably since I read the book because um, the. Uh, the way that it became a political policy and which it sort of compartmentalised people and and sort of offered people money if they displayed their ethnicity in a certain way. So you could get funding for your local community centre if you wanted to do traditional Sikh dancing or whatever, but maybe not if you just wanted to listen to house music and hang out with your mates, you know. So there is a downside to it, but in the broader, more general um, sense of the term, I think what you're alluding to, yeah, is just a sense of everybody getting along with each other and learning from each other and being enriched by each mm. other's cultures, you mm-hmm. know, and which is surely, you know, a sensible. Yeah. Um, I mean, could I could I just read a, a, a couple of lines um, that sort of maybe demonstrate um the way I was feeling with relation to the the bombing Um, one of the four bombs that exploded in London on 7th of July 2005 went off in a carriage on the Piccadilly line two weeks later with forensic work complete and I should say I arrived at the gates of the tube ready to get on the tube one stop away from where it happened Um, and just as i got there they kind of closed the gates and said that there was some kind of power outage and we couldn't go down but then immediately the sirens started because the um, hospital outside paddington is where people were brought to and the whole sort of the tube network closed down and we all started walking across london to work which is a very strange feeling. It was a sort of apocalyptic feeling, but you kind of knew immediately something really heavy had happened. Yes. Yeah. Bad. Um, so th- that's the background. But um, two weeks later, with forensic work complete, the identities of those who died that day were published in the newspapers. Those unbearably moving columns of name, to- names told a story. Twelve of those listed as having died on the Piccadilly Line train that day were said to have been a British nationality. Three were Polish, one was French, one a New Zealander, one Turkish, one Iranian, one Afghani, one Romanian, one Vietnamese and one Mauritanian. For me, that carriage and its occupants represent the country I'm proud to belong to. So, I mean, those words, it's interesting for me to read those words now in the light of what's happened subsequently and mm. the sort of political journey we've all been on and where we are now. And so, in that way, at least, it, or finding a <laughs> bubble of air from, you know, 2007 and, re- and releasing it now uh, and the kind of ideas that were being expressed then, I think it has a relevance, you know, mm. in that way. As well, yeah. because I think probably in 2005, we started on a trajectory um, that we arrived mm. at our current destination sometime later.
0: I have to say, though, that it's not just a political book. No, not um, at all. Um, yeah, there's m- there are so, many sorry. digressions. I, I get the sense that you didn't foresee those digressions before you started. That you 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 were led by your the nose basically. Um, is that true?
1: Well, I think part of that is the kind of style, and part of it is the process. Mm. And I mean, one of the things I did was to take along as a travelling companion a sort of seventeenth century guide, who was Robert Burton, who wrote The Anatomy of Melancholy in 1621, which is one of the kind of craziest and most fascinating books you're ever likely to read. And what I found was that he could comment on almost anything. So when I visited sex shop and and saw the kind of stuff that was inside there you know he would have something to say about that from Mm. his 17th century perspective but he would be talking about the emperor Nero's kind of dirty drawings you know um so I felt I was traveling through time as well as as place and I was also I think when you're working on a book and you get gripped by it suddenly everything seems full of significance so, you discover things um, as you go along. Yeah. And I was also like looking in the book sections of secondhand bookshops along Cowley Road or, or charity yeah. shops, I uh, should yeah. say, yeah. and coming across a sort of tattered copy of Lucretius and then reading it and finding, my God, he's talking about Cowley Road. You know, I, I felt yeah. that these <laughs> yeah. things were coming in all the time. And then there was the chance encounters with people um, that that also were very much part of the process Mm. and I think it was very useful for me doing this book because I learnt some techniques as a travel writer which are almost actually now unconscious but just a way of being open to meeting people, which is, is not really anything to do with even approaching people, but it's something almost like body language. People just seem to come up to me and say things after a while. You know, just That's when I was wondering about... Yeah. yeah, that technique has informed other books, yeah, really. And I suppose this was the first time I did it. It was just that I marked out that territory of the Cowley Road as this special zone. So anytime I went down there... I would then be in a kind of alert state for anything that happened. Uh, and the lesson really is that anybody can do it, mm. you know, and that it's a question of paying attention. Really. Mm.
0: Well, there's, there's, an in, there's an internal journey going on as well as the external journey, and yeah. hence your references to Burton's... M- yeah, I think, and... I,
1: was, I think this is really the kind of oldest, the oldest kind of structure for a book that predates the novel... It's the pilgrimage narrative where somebody sets out with a destination in mind. I mean, it might be Jerusalem. In my case, it was the car factory at Cowley that I was going to reach eventually, which indeed was full of revelations and interest. Um, But the subtext to those books is always you're going to fight various things along the way. You're going to meet dragons in the woods or or knights that attack you with a big sword Mm -hmm. or whatever. But also you're going to come back changed in some way. Yeah. And I think that sort of structure has survived and it's, it's there in novels and it's there very much in travel writing. So, so I think that was what was informing this. But it was the first thing of this kind that I'd ever tried to write. And so I, I was working it out as I went along, mm. as you. Kate. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, all all the better for it, I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've read quite a, a bit of psychogeography, but this doesn't seem to fit into that genre. To me, it's it's, no. it's it has its it's. Uh, But you've just explained it, I think. um, Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, you know, the whole concept of psychogeography, of course, came from situationist and letterist writings from the mm. 50s and 60s in France and was then sort of co-opted by a school of British writers, you know, one of whom, of course, used it as the name for a newspaper column. I mean, I'd, I'd happened to know about it because I'd written about an American artist in the 70s who was very much involved in sort of urbanism and, and urban theory and stuff, and spent time in Paris. And I, that had led me to read it. And weirdly, by the time I was started writing Islarian, I thought that the whole psychogeography thing was sort of played out, and no one would want to hear about that, so I didn't mention it anywhere. Mm. But of course, that did, the influence was there. But I think one difference, one thing that I find with that kind of writing is very often a kind of outsider's viewpoint. It's very often, you know, drifting through and the only people they meet are some other drifter or someone very much like themselves or mm. yeah, or a derelict or something who turns out to be a prophet from the druidic past or something. <laughs> and something with Isolarian that I really wanted to do was understand my own neighborhood and... Feel connected. I mean, Mm. I think part of the thing you allude to—the sort of melancholy—I was sort of investigating how, in the 21st century, those ideas about melancholy might be more about being, in my case, for instance, a commuter at the time when I wrote this. I wrote quite a lot of it up on the train, yeah. Which is partly why sections of it are of that particular length, because it was about 40 or 50 minutes (laughs) on the train, and and when you when you're doing that when you're sort of leaving home early getting home late you have the sort of privilege of being an outsider in two places at once you know both in london and and here you you're not you've moved to a city but you haven't quite connected with it because mm. you don't have time to know it so i i thought well i'm going to get to know it and i'm going to talk to people but at the end i think you know if there's a sort of resolution or or the pilgrim comes back changed it's it's really through feeling a part of a of a community you know which I think it that that did happen you know Mm. I just I met a lot of people and um you know some of them who were like what the hell are you doing you know I remember there used to be a tattoo parlor on um Cowley Road right on there yeah I remember it (laughs) yeah Eagle Tattoos I think it was called and I sat in there and hung out in there and I tried to get the guy to talk to me and he just you know, mm. it's a waste of time. I'm not, you know, what yeah. are you talking about? I you mean, it's very nice media. to me. Do I mention it in there? No, uh, I was going
0: to say, you mentioned Mir Island in there. That's gone, and I used to love that place.
1: Yeah, 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 very nice place. Yeah. But, you know, the the waiter who worked in there became a good friend and he subsequently opened up other business uh, Nepalese uh, restaurants and so yeah Yeah. so you know life goes on it just shifts and changes you know yeah
0: yeah you 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 mentioned at the beginning that you come from a rural background Mm. which uh, piqued my interest because I do too and I just wondered if that gives you a different kind of tack on the way that you observe city life?
1: I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I was born into sort of uh, village kind of life, rural life. And from a very early age, I was just desperate to get to the city. Like (laughs) from about 11 or 12, you know, I mean, I used to walk for two miles to sort of buy a copy of the NME or whatever from the news agents and be reading about everything that was happening in the city and and was desperate to get there and sort of got there when I was about 17. So... Yeah, undoubtedly, like, when you arrive as a young person, there's a sort of romantic, um, you know, you just want to plunge right in and mm. experience everything. And, you know, to a, a small extent, maybe that never leaves you. Maybe um, it does give you a different eye for it. I mm. don't know. I mean, I've got no choice. I can't try it the other way, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I think one of the things I remember best about the book is the amount I laughed throughout it. Um, there's a lot of scrapes that James gets into um, in immersion pools, going into pawn shops.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think we, we've possibly made it sound uh, very serious this morning. It could be something to do with the fact that it's Monday morning. Mm. But um, yeah, anybody going on a journey like this uh, especially perhaps in their own neighbourhood, is going to make a fool of themselves, and I, I do that quite a lot, and I leave that in, but you know, because I yeah. think that's that's life, you know. And yes. I was having fun myself, and and laughing at myself a little bit.
0: I think there's a lovely balance between melancholia and joy. That's what
1: I got. Ain't quick. that life?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <Yeah.
0: laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of Blackwell's Presents. Thank you to James for joining us today. His book is Isolarian, and it's available now. Follow our Instagram and Twitter at Blackwell Oxford and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Blackwell's Bookshops. Thank you.